I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights, and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian National Gallery as part of the ANU National Security College's annual Women in National Security event. The college's Women in National Security program showcases and celebrates the contribution women make to the national security community. Enjoy. I'd like to welcome you all officially uh, to our podcast recording. Uh, as Caroline said, my name is Olivia and I'm one of the directors at the college and an occasional host of our podcast series. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. I'm delighted today to be joined by three fantastic guests, and I'll just introduce them briefly, and I think throughout the course of our questions um, from myself and from our audience, we'll get to know a little bit more about them. The first is Kimberly Brennan. She is a partner at Ernst & Young and Olympic medalist in rowing. She has this fantastic background that marries her interest in technology, insulting, and in uh, intellectual property law with her sporting career, which has seen her take on some really major clients and some challenging projects in her role now as a consultant and really trying to energise and grow high-performing businesses and projects. The next person I want to invite um, welcome is Catherine. Catherine McMullen is the director of the Australian Geospatial Intelligence Organisation and a former first assistant director general at the Office of National Intelligence. Catherine comes from a long, long career in the national intelligence community. I'm really delighted to have her here and talk about the capability that she is now trying to grow in her role at DNI. Sorry, at AGO. My apologies. <laughs> And then finally, we have Nunu Wynn. Nunu is a Sir Roland Wilson scholar, currently on leave from her regular day job as an assistant secretary in Treasury while she completes her PhD in economics. Nunu has been uh, head of uh, a macroeconomic analyst in a number of really high-profile roles in public and private sector, including uh, BHP in Singapore and for the World Bank in Washington, D.C., so I'm really delighted to have these three amazing women on the panel today that come from a lot of different range of roles throughout their careers, but also a range of different sectors from sort of more traditional national intelligence, national security community, to the private sector, to academia and research. So please join me in welcoming Kim, Catherine and Nunu. Um, now, 
Caroline and Gay sort of introduced the theme a little bit um, for the podcast series as, um, already, but I just wanted to give a brief intro into how we conceptualise this event and today's podcast. The theme for today's podcast is change. Changes that we've witnessed, changes that we're living through, and the changes we want to shape for the future. And it seems almost an aphorism to say that the world is going through enormous change politically, socially, economic, demographic, technological, environmental. We read to seem we seem to daily read about seismic shifts in almost every arena. And often these shifts are accompanied by this claim that the pace and scale of change that we're witnessing is unprecedented. And because the changes and challenges we face really are big, it can sometimes even feel a bit overwhelming. It means that change will test our courage and our leadership, both for ourselves, for our organisations, for the national security community writ large, and for the national interest writ large. So on today's podcast, I'm going to ask our guests with their wealth of experience across many disciplines, how they have navigated changes that are both personal and professional. I'm going to start with a question that's sort of about the past, but drawing the past into what we want to see for the future. And I think one of the things we often forget about change is that even when we go through change fatigue, a lot of what we experience is shaped by past events. And there are histories, lessons that we often forget or learn too late. So I want to start with you, Kim. Can you please share a moment of change that you've witnessed or that you've been a part of? What was integral for this change and what was the outcome? Absolutely, and and thank you for having me today. It's a it's a huge honour to to be here. I'm going to take you back to a time well before I was a part of the national security community, um, and and well before I'd, I'd moved into the the world of consulting. I'm going to take you back to three years into my rowing career. Now, my my shift into rowing was was one that was brought about by adversity. Um, so. I was an aspiring track and field athlete. Um, Really, everything to me was going to the Olympic Games. Um, And then I suffered a series of foot injuries uh, that meant I had to to retire from um, from running um, and found myself in a boat. And that's not actually the point of this story because for the first first couple of years of being a rower, the journey was amazingly fun. Um, And the reason for that was when you start something new and for people here who have started a new job, when you're learning something and you're improving, um, you're improving consistently, it's a really, um, it's a really satisfying feeling. So my early years in rowing of going out for each session and getting better and getting better results um, had been really fulfilling. Um, I had great early results Um, about a year into my rowing career, I won a medal at the World Championships. The following year was even better. And then the third year was the Beijing Olympic Games. And we went into those Olympic Games with really high hopes. Um, We performed really well in the lead-up and we we honestly believed that we'd done the work, um, we'd done everything right, we'd done what our coaches had asked of us, Um, And we thought we were genuine contenders to to perform well at those games. As it turned out, we actually came last. And and that is 
So it wasn't just that we hadn't made the podium, um, but we had significantly underperformed what we'd hoped we could achieve. And I think back to that time and the story that I told myself at that time, and I think there was a a self-protective mechanism in it, but a lot of the story I told myself was around um, being hard done by. You know, I... I had a narrative around, you know, I had gone in injured and that was because um, things had happened to me. Um, I felt that we were overtrained because our, our coach hadn't read the situation properly. I felt that, you know, they, they hadn't selected the, the right crews and done the right things. And that was a narrative that was really reinforced by the people around me as well. And, and I think a number of people this will resonate with. When something, um, when something shit happens, we we often rally around people and we say, don't worry, it's not you. You know, you're, you're wonderful, you're great, that's so unfair that that happened and, you know, it's, it's that person's fault or that person's fault and, and, and we, we try to make people feel better um, by telling them it, it wasn't them. A year later, I had a similarly poor result at the World Championships um, and, and shortly after that, had a really confronting, honest conversation with my coach. And I think that was the first time the light bulb properly went off, that the spotlight was put on me and my role in this. And it's incredibly, incredibly uncomfortable to be faced with the fact that you've made mistakes, you've done things wrong, um, you've failed at things that really mattered to you. Um, hadn't communicated as well as I should have, I hadn't taken responsibility for the things that I should have, I wasn't as fit as I hoped to be, I didn't concentrate as well as I wanted to, that hurts. Um, But actually confronting that discomfort and sitting there and being there and saying, you know what, I'm not perfect, I'm, I'm flawed and I'm working on it, was really empowering um, because that gave me the ability to um, to really work on everything that would make me um, a better person, a better leader, a better rower, um, a better teammate. Um, and having having that spotlight um, has been something that has been a really critical learning for me that shaped the athlete I became, but also in my professional life of being willing to to really take responsibility for mistakes and also make sure that the teams that I'm a part of, I offer the same generosity of forgiveness and learning to the people around me because I think sometimes we have a tendency to create quite a binary view. People are good or bad, you know, a mistake makes you bad. But the reality is if you have that binary view, it's very hard to put that spotlight on yourself because everyone makes mistakes everyone fails and everyone can do better. Um, and I think for me that was a really critical point of change um, that has helped me um, turn up each day, um, particularly in, a, in a, new, a new world for me where I am an outsider again to go, I don't know all the answers um, and I'm not going to get things right all the time, but I'm at least going to be honest with myself um, as to how I can do better each day. Thank you so much for that story, Kim. I I love how frank and honest you are about that and certainly a huge thing that's been part of your life and has shaped your leadership. I think it's 
It's really pronounced when you talk about the pressure and the spotlight because I'm sure that resonates with a lot of people in the room. But for you, that is a national spotlight. That is the Olympic Games. You are put out there, you know, and there's all that expectation on your shoulders. And to really carry that through and, and to grow from that and to become more resilient from that, like I have a huge amount of admiration for that. I think one of the interesting things um, that, that I did learn throughout my career, I, I used to think it was about not getting nervous um, and I've realised that, that that's not right. You know, the emotions that we feel, um, we, we can't stop those emotions. What we, can, what we can do, though, is work on how we respond to them and one of the things leading into the, the Rio Olympics, so I knew I'd be going into the Olympic Games as the favourite and, and I knew there was a lot of pressure on me to get this right and I also knew from a personal point of view I'd, I'd sacrificed a lot um, to, to be where I was. And I wanted to be prepared for the fact that I'd sit on that start line at the Olympic final and be so incredibly nervous. And so I wanted to practice being nervous. So I'd sit on the start line at a local regatta on Lake Burley Griffin. I'd try to work myself into this absolute tears of nerves of, you know, oh my gosh, this is, this is such a big deal. It's so nervous, practice being nervous, you know, but pretend that there's butterflies there, all of that. The irony is that fast forward to the Olympic final and that's, actually the calmest I have ever been in my life. And the reason for that is that by the time you get to an Olympic final, when you have been ruthlessly um, transparent with yourself every step along the way, you sit there with the comfort of knowing there is nothing else you could have done. And you know that you've practiced this. It's like there's not many times in your life where you can actually say, I've spent the past 11 years focused on this one moment and I know how I want to think, I know how I want to feel, I know what I want to hear, I know what I'm going to do. It's just all I have to do now is do what I've trained myself to do. Um, so there was a real irony in that, that a lot of the time that preparation um, and that, you know, honesty within yourself, it's not its not what you, um, you know, pretend, oh, you know, I've ticked every box and I've done stuff. You know within your heart of hearts whether you've really um, – whether you've really done everything that you could do. And so that, you know, couple of minutes before the start of the Olympic final was was strangely this this sense of calmness that, you know, ever since then I would love to, to recreate, um, <laughs> recreate that composure. I, I would just quickly mention, um, because Kim is being a bit humble, she won the gold medal at the Rio Olympics, so... Like, nailed it. <laughs> the power of ruthless accountability. Um, does anyone have a story they want to share? Maybe not along those veins. That was a pretty high bar. Um, <laughs> but in, in terms of that sense of accountability, I, I might throw to you if you don't mind, Catherine, because you're fairly new in the role that you're in now. And does that weigh on you too, like in, in terms of like driving that change and being accountable and creating that space where you say to your team, and particularly as a leader in a fairly new role, I am not perfect, I'm new to this too, and let's learn together and let's be on that journey together? Um, so I think the politically correct answer would be to say, yes, of course, it weighs heavily on me. Um, but my honest answer is no, um, because I feel highly prepared for it um, in that the organisation when I joined did a fantastic job of briefing me in 
um, demonstrating where we were performing well, where there was risk, um, where they, they were really looking for guidance. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kudos to their preparation. Um, and then secondly, I'd say, um, you know, any any of our businesses are about the quality of the people. Um, I'm very lucky. I've got an excellent senior leadership team. Um, I, my natural style is one of a, a team-based one. So, um, you know, I'm very forward-leaning on kind of sharing my thoughts. We discuss things. We unpack problems together. Um, and so that decision-making process, whilst ultimately it sits with me, it is a team-based process. And I think that one... Um, you know, gives assurance to them that their issues um, and concerns are being addressed but also helps ensure that the decision I land at is one that is informed um, with the best available information at that point in time. Um, And I think that's a good recipe for solid decision-making, essentially. That's a really good way to put it. And and the the kind of the thread throughout all of that is kind of that sense of preparation from the both of you but preparation ourselves individually but the organizations as well there's there's an element of sort of accountability from the organizations you work for that create that kind of environment that culture absolutely and you know and I think it's about respect you know I I walked in and the organization had spent time and effort preparing you know the incoming director's briefing pack and um and if I hadn't have read that that's disrespectful to people's time and effort um and so I absolutely read it in the first week and then was asking questions and all those kinds of things um, that flow from that. Um, and I think once, firstly, there was kind of shock I had read it and, and secondly then kind of, um, you know, a kind of then excitement that we could actually, you know, accelerate a lot faster. So I'm four months into the job and I feel very comfortable um, about what we're doing and where we're going. And, again, that's because the, the people in the organisation have prepared me well for that. Um, but I've, you know, I've, give, I've sought to give back to give the commitments that, that the organisation is asking of the director. That doesn't mean I'm working seven days a week, 24 hours, but it, it does mean that, you know, things land on me. I need to engage with it. I need to consult with people and I need to give the organisation direction. And I hope that's also really validating for any one of us who have been in an incoming government brief process <laughs> or have the great privilege of doing one in the future, myself included. It's nice to know they're red, but it's also nice to know that they're powerful and they, they build a relationship with the leader that you're trying to influence. If I could shift our timeframes a little bit now into the present, and this question is for Nunu. Um, now, Nunu, what change are you currently trying to drive in your field or in your workplace? Um, so I might start that with a little bit of a touch in the past, if you'll indulge me. That is but absolutely fine. <laughs> so, so I remember coming back from DC and, you know, for anyone who's travelled in North America, especially some of these, you know, larger cities, it's a very multicultural place. And I was working at the World Bank, which is the most multicultural place you can work at in the world. And I remember coming back to Treasury and... I was, you know, heading up a geoeconomic regional engagement area. And I suspect many people kind of, you know, understand this experience. And I was sitting in this meeting and we were talking about regional engagement and I looked around the room and there were people from lots of places across government and I was the only person of colour in that room. <laughs> and we were talking about regional engagement. And also what, what struck me was, I was there were no people who, were, who had a visible disability in this room. 
And if you look down the, all, the, all the names, there was a really, really large Anglo-Celtic dominance of names. So there was, I think there was one you know, continental European name in the, in the list. And, um, and I went back and I thought, wow, this is, this is such a, a, an adjustment from coming from the World Bank. And I remember that moment and going back to my desk and saying, right, as a treasury economist, what's the data say? <laughs> you know? And, and um, so as a Sorrell and Wilson scholar, and, and you know, we have this large uh, uh, focus on evidence-based policy. M- m- many, much of my work is actually in tax and fiscal modelling which unsurprisingly doesn't get much notice. But the thing that seems to have really <laughs> captured people's imaginations is the paper that I've just put out. Uh, there's a working paper now on the um, ANU website. And what it does is estimate promotion probabilities for every level in the APS using 20 years of, pop- of data. So every single person in the APS is in that data set. We model every single promotion ever given over the past 20 years. And we measure what the, the, the impact of being a woman, having a disability and being of non-English speaking background on your promotion prospects. And that's controlling for skills, experience, being a graduate, being part of a central agency. So for me, I think what I've tried to do with that is bring some data, evidence and science to our diversity discussions about, you know, is it true that you know, people of non-English speaking backgrounds don't get promoted because perhaps there's a language barrier. Well, actually, it turns out not to be true because even people who are born and raised here have decreasing probabilities of promotion as they ascend ranks. Um, and it gets larger and larger. It, it's something like 60 to 70 percent. Um, uh, the English speaking background staff has 60 or 70 percent higher probability of getting to SES to a comparable non-English speaking background staff. Now that probability is still something like 40% higher, even if the non-English speaking background staff was born and raised here. So fluent English, culturally Australian, they're still not getting to SES. So one thing I've tried to do with that paper at least is to bring some evidence and science and data to our diversity discussions we have the full set of results also for our in, uh, for the indigenous cohort in, in the APS, which are undergoing um, uh, through the ethics approval process, as you have to do whenever you analyze indigenous data. But for any people who are indigenous First Nations, please reach out because I can share those results with you. So that's, I think, a really important element of diversity and thinking about diversity is actually to bring evidence to the game because only through evidence can you actually isolate the problems and, I guess, push against our biased expectations about why, why these uh, outcomes are happening across the service. Can I just make a, a, of course. a good comment there? But it's, it, it's incredibly interesting to hear because one of the things, and I suspect this isn't happening in government, but it's certainly happening more broadly across private sector is the use of generative AI in, in recruitment scouting and recruitment decisions. And obviously if that's using historical data, it would be inherently biased and be embedding, um, you know, decisions over over many many years and make it even harder um, to see a better a better answer so it would be incredibly incredibly important that's a really good point and the, the role of technology 
in leaning against biases is a really important one. But we also have to remember that the starting point is panels who might view someone who has a visible uh, disability, who is coming through, you know, an affirmative action Indigenous program or someone who looks like me, they may not see that person as a secretary. So we already have ingrained biases culturally and in our system, both through Australian culture but also through APS culture, right? And it is much easier to reprogram an algorithm than it is to reprogram people, right? So... If I don't like what, what the algorithm is telling me, and I know it's harder with generative AI, but if I don't like what it's have, um, telling me, I can reprogram the parameters. With people, I must go through an enormous cultural change ex- experience, right? And we've done that successfully. So, so my results show that women at every level started less likely to be promoted than men, but from 2012 onwards accelerated so that now women at every level, are just as likely to be promoted than men and at EL2 and SES, more likely, right? So we've had this huge cultural change in across the public service generally. We can do it. It takes about a decade. But I can reprogram AI in about a second. Can I just jump in because I'm deep in the AI issue in a defence sense at the moment? Um, uh, reprogramming the algorithm is great, but when you're working off data that is dated, biased, and gives you false assumptions, it's really, really difficult. And um, I know the sort of the ethics of AI is the trendy thing at the moment, but it becomes very tangible in a defence military conte- context if you're thinking about how you take automated decision-making and apply it to something that has a direct impact on someone uh, as a a personal entity and putting uh, humans in the loop on that is really hard because if it's presenting something to you that is um, built off incorrect data, it's really difficult to know because it's so ingrained in our technology at every step of the way. Um, it's, it's, It's a very live challenge. And this conversation is really important because we've looked at technology in the pace of technology and people are seizing it as a bit of a magic bullet to solve social and cultural problems. And that's clearly not the case, which is the point that Catherine pointed out. Nunu, um, this is the first time Nunu and I have met, but I said to her just before we started the podcast that as an Asian, Chinese-Australian from a non-English-speaking background who arrived in this country after the age of six, her research really, really was like pushing on an open wound. But (laughs) notwithstanding my personal takeaways, I think it's important to think about how we together reprogram APS culture to be more inclusive and diverse, but also how we make sure that machines do not do that for us or do not pretend or claim to do that for us. Technology is not going to solve the problems that we have in the community. Technology is neither good nor evil or neutral. There are people who frame it, who control it, who train it, who bring together the data that it's based on. And I think it's really important that we can't stand back and allow these changes to make decisions for us, as Catherine said, because we are also the object of those decisions. So as leaders, we have to kind of seize the initiative to drive where progress takes us and where progress takes us in the right, positive, pro-social directions that we have. Um, And that is a huge responsibility, but it is an incredible opportunity for us in the national security community and in communities outside national security as well. So on the topic of AI and machines making decisions for us, I'm going to shift us into the future. And... Catherine, this one is for you to start with. 
Are there any changes that you think the national security community or our audience or policymakers in general should be focusing on, in your view? Uh, there's there's lots. I mean, I think um, one is uh, I've said I said it earlier. You know, our business is all about people. So um, as part of our leadership um, role in in any change environment, it's really about explaining the why, the purpose, what we're doing, um, and how the direction of travel we're going in is going to get us to that that end state goal. Um, but you know, when I look at um, the business that I'm in uh, at the moment, um, you know, geospatial intelligence, um, you know, it's a, geospatial is a boom industry at the moment. Um, everyone, every sort of second company that's being stood up at the moment uh, seems to have geospatial intelligence offerings uh, and industry is growing. Um, but uh, just like it's done in sort of other int type businesses um, and it really presents with us how we think about the nature of our business. You know, what is it that we do that is unique and special and can't be done by commercial partners? Uh, what is it about our business that requires particular skill sets, particular training, etc.? But ultimately, um, you know, when I think about broader national security objectives, it's a, it's a whole of country, whole of workforce effort um, and if we can share the burden on delivering against that effort in a more um, seamless way where we have mature you know, strategic partnerships with industry on capability, on training, on workforce, on service delivery, um, and we're really just doing the things inside the classified environments that we absolutely have to do in that space and no one else can do it. Um, but we've got that mobility between industry, academia, um, private sector, um, you know, broader governments and international partners, we should absolutely be looking to do that. Um, so we've talked a lot as a community about mobility of workforce, um, diversifying our pipelines. You know, we need to keep doing all of that. But at some point, we also need to fundamentally think, am I doing the thing that I need to be doing or can someone else be doing that for me and how can I build partnerships to deliver that outcome? I don't need to um, build the satellites, launch the satellites, collect all the data off the satellites, ingest it, analyse it, get it to customers. I don't need to do all of that. I've got partners that can do parts of that supply chain but I absolutely need to do the bit where you're um, ingesting it, analysing it, fusing it with other bits of intelligence and then delivering it to customers for, for what I describe as decision advantage. And that could be um, the emergency response committee because we help support, we help state and territory governments at bushfires. It could be the military who are in theatre executing a military outcome. It could be the Prime Minister um, and around the NSC table where they need to understand how to help evacuate um, non-combatants out of a conflict zone. Now, it could be a myriad of things, but if we think about an ecosystem of partnership, um, then I th and we can force ourselves to rethink our business and what we fundamentally have to do inside the tent, um, I think we can change the nature of our relationships. Can I just draw in our other two panellists on that, this ecosystem of partnerships? Because what Catherine was talking about is also ecosystem of partnerships better with private sector and with academia. What's your view on how, on, on how to grow that ecosystem? 
Um, so I'll touch on, I guess, the data issue that we were raising, right? So we've got this explosion of the growth in administrative data sets, right? And, um, and uplifting our capability to use and leverage that in all parts. And, you know, obviously I've leveraged HR data, but, you know, the other three chapters of my thesis, you know, access tax data, census, you know, it's, it's, it's this enormous growth of data and it's understanding the appropriate ways to use that, to leverage that, um, the quality of the data. So there's always bias in the collection. So what fields do you collect? Right? The, even the fact that we call the multicultural cohort in the public service non-English speaking background, even if they only speak English, <laughs> um, just because their parents speak, you know, first language was a language other than English. The fact that we do not, uh, we're the only Western economy not to pick up race as a variable. There, there's even a bias in the categories that we put out, you know. So, so starting from that and having a partnership with academia to understand where the bias is in, in the whole chain of that, of that collection and analysis and usage and how it then feeds into, into broader, broader complex systems it is, is a really important partnership to actually invest in. I com- completely agree. I think there's, there's a few elements to it, you know, having right, uh, right business models, right partners, um, playing the right roles together um, is, is part of it. I think the other thing that's part of it is diverse teams make better decisions. Um, and we have a we do have a bias towards people with a lot of experience in a particular domain um, that makes it very hard for outsiders to come in um, and feel like they have um, a voice that is worth listening to on a particular problem. And one of the things that that we often find is we'll have um, someone who's a, a 20-year specialist in a particular technology who's spent their life working in, in banking and mining, um, doing a particular thing, and we'll bring them across, get them cleared to solve a particular problem in the, in the national security space. And they feel so underconfident. Um, even though what they actually bring um, is hugely beneficial. Um, but getting to that point that we understand that approaching problems in, in different ways, um, and that's not, it's not just skills-based, it's sort of different personalities, um, different backgrounds, um, different um, socioeconomic groups, bringing together a greater diversity and range of people um, always will produce a better decision-making result. So, so finding a way um, that there is a real safety and a real respect um, for people who may not feel, um, feel a part of a particular group I think is, um, is key as well. Yeah, and that's so important no matter what sector or organisation or what role you're from. Um, now, if I could close with a final question for all of you, and this is sort of future casting... Um, could you comment on what lessons you've learned from your past efforts to make change? And essentially, what is your top tip for being an effective change maker? I might start with you, Catherine. Uh, sure. Um, uh, so I think uh, effective change, um, explaining the why, what, why we're doing it, why do you need change, etc. 
Um, I talk about having consistent and persistent messaging, so being absolutely consistent about what we're doing, why we're doing it, what we're working towards, and being annoyingly persistent and repetitive about it uh, because there's never too many, too much comms. Um, the third bit is kind of, I think uh, someone on the panel said it earlier, accepting that you're never going to please 100% of the people. Um, you know, that we are imperfect and uh, no one, not everyone is going to be happy and we need to actually accept that. But um, change and improvement, um, sometimes it's transformational and sometimes it's just incremental and it takes time. Um, so I think if you can kind of, you know, hit those three things, um, you're setting yourself up for success. Um, but And the final bit, which often doesn't get um, talked about much, but, uh, you know, change, people often look to the leadership group to affect change. But actually the most effective change is when people are both from the ground up are driving it, your middle management are on board with it uh, and the leadership are, are setting the vision and all three of those elements are aligned. Um, so everyone has a role to play in affecting change um, and taking ownership of your individual participation in that in a constructive way um i you know I, I really encourage people to do that and that's a leadership job it's a management job but it's also just being a member of the organization that you're in change is constant uh and sometimes it's small and slow and sometimes it's big and fast uh but ultimately we're all living through change all of the time um so i just encourage you to embrace it accept it Know that it's never going to be perfect, uh, but just ask your, ask your leadership why and make sure that they're consistent about delivering and staying focused on that outcome. Kim, I love that. The, the, the change is constant um, is, I think, the perfect message. And I think the other thing is it's also not one directional. Um, so, so one of the things with how we bring ourselves um, into a particular team um, or into a particular context is we need the ability to change how we how we present ourselves and how we fit in depending on the team around us um, and depending on the, the the needs of that particular situation. And the example I would give is I've I've chaired a finance audit and risk committee for for almost eight years now. Um, I've had various chairs and CEOs um, in that time. And if you've got a, a chair and a CEO who have a very high risk appetite, um, your job is as part of that team and getting a better answer um, is to, to bring your contribution in a way that, that brings balance. Um, likewise, when, when the chair changed um, to have a different risk appetite, um, there's a different way to fit into that scenario. And so I think the reality is as the world changes around us, as the needs of our organisation changes, as our team changes, the people we work with, the people we work for, the people we work near, um, we also need to have um, the, the perception and the willingness to adapt to that, which is why we can never get it right and we're always going to need to improve because it's a constant thing of, of guessing, learning, iterating and trying to adapt um, to the scenarios that, that come before us. Um, I think I'd like to reflect on, um, you know, people say, well, I can't affect change because, you know, the system's doing this or, you know, the structures are against me. But I love that idea of personal accountability because you are the system. 
right? And you, you can make a big difference if you go back to your seat and take accountability for that one thing that you know will te- make your workplace and the service better, right? Because I, I think when I thought about change and, you know, whether to not whether or not to do this data analysis, write that paper, you know, turn up today. One of the issues is, well, if it's not going to be you, then who is it going to be, right? Um, and why did you join the service? Did you, jo- did you join it to act with integrity, to be a steward, to leave the service and your workplace in a better position than which you found it when you entered? So if everyone, if you take personal accountability for the change, you can affect large change. There is no such thing as a system because you are the system. Um, so I, I think that's the message that I would like to leave. That's a wonderfully motivational note to end on. Thank you, Nunu. You are the system. And I think a lot of us probably come into this community and into the work we do believing that the world is run by people who show up. So show up every day and every day after. We'll be right back. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In this disrupted world... Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. Now, I have a couple of uh, questions from our audience today. Um, so the first question um, from one of the audience members comes from Afia Akond. Afia? Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, my name is Afia Akond and I work at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Um, and thank you so much to Nunu, Kim, Olivia and Catherine for sharing your insights and to National Security College for organising this podcast event. So my question is specifically around the topic of intersectionality in national security, especially with respect to the inclusion of women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So as we've heard, the National Security College has been doing really fantastic work on cold representation as evident through the podcast series earlier this year. And Nunu, congratulations on your working paper where you engage on this issue um, within the APS with one key finding being around the difficulties faced by Asian Australians in promotion opportunities. So my question specifically for the panellists is, how can we ensure that women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are proportionally represented in senior leadership positions in national security? And noting some of the issues that the panellists have highlighted around AI um, in recruitment, what are some better strategies that could be instead used? Uh, thanks, Sophia, for that question. So, um, so I was heavily involved in the gender equity uh, kind of move, movement that we had about a decade ago. And as part of that, you know, at Treasury, I, you know, my team and I put out analysis that show that, you know, female grads were being promoted more slowly than male grads, you know, using, you know, this 
field called leadership, which was just a, you know, someone's expectation that someone had been doing a great leadership job. So it wasn't, it was kind of the fuzziest of all the measures. We also show that, you know, women who got promoted um, to higher ranks were just over, over that 10 year period were, you know, uh, had top marks, you know, better marks than some of the men who were getting promoted. And as part of that, we moved to a, you know, a female SES target, which we have reached and exceeded. So I'm quite proud to have been part of that movement. And as I said, you know, my analysis shows that women are now equally likely to be promoted, you know, at every level compared to similar men. But that doesn't mean tools down. Why? Because that's public service-wide analysis. And anecdotally, in some of the kind of internationally oriented national security agencies, well, some of the women tell me that there's a bit of a dip at EO1 and EO2 level in terms of their promotion prospects. So maybe a little bit of analysis in relation to parts of the service where we still might have issues is warranted. And having said that as well, what does progress along this along this measure mean? Well, it means hanging on to the gains that we've made and going further, right? Because what it shows is that uh, women who are, are culled and calm, so culturally and linguistically diverse or culturally uh, and, and racially marginalised, have been left behind in this. And so when I think back to some of the policies that we deployed, you know, as part of kind of equalising kind of gender probabilities, it was the whole chain of events in, 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 the, in the person's career. So we made sure that the intake was gender balanced. We made sure, sure that we were looking at how workflows were allocated between men and women because some of the, uh, some of the uh, feedback we'd gotten was that women were getting coordination tasks and men were getting the higher-profile policy tasks that eventually led to high-profile briefings. So they were kicking policy goals even though the graduates were getting in the door were, were very, very uh, intelligent, very talented people, regardless of gender. Um, and also, you know, it became an SES accountability to make sure that whenever there was a promotion or acting opportunity, every single person who was eligible had a go, had, you know, actually put up their hand for that regardless of gender. Um, so we, we kind of, we started to, I guess, because we didn't know exactly where this was happening, we started to dismantle every bit of the chain and then we ended and then we entered mentorship and sponsorship and then having high profile women um, on our executive board really accomplished to give that kind of aspirational see, seeing someone like yourself in a position of power um, and so when I think of that process, I think of well that 's something you know from the gender movement, that's a template that we can use. Mm. And it's not just for culturally and linguistically diverse staff, but also for disability and also for Indigenous First Nations and other, you know, marginalised uh, groups in the APS. So, so I really love that thought of taking what we did for gender mm. and, and knowing that works and being able to expand that um, to help other cohorts. Um, we actually have uh, a second question, sort of down a similar vein, um, from Mel Anotsky. Uh, hi, um, thanks for letting me ask this question. I'm I'm from the Mosaic Project, uh, so we're looking at um, so we're an APS wide program looking to promote cultural and linguistic diversity within the APS and address barriers to representation. So Nunu, thank you for your work. Um, my question's actually for Catherine. Uh, with Australia's tight labour market, many companies are focused on broadening their talent pipelines beyond applicant cohorts they've traditionally more easily attracted. 
Where do you see tangible opportunities for the national security community to attract um, and retain a broader range of culturally diverse staff as a way to address these workforce shortages and bring in new capabilities and perspectives? Thanks very much for your question. Um, and I would I suppose if I had an easy answer, we'd be uh, there already. Um, but for me, it really starts at the very beginning, which is, you know, the kind of visibility and attraction and people just getting to think about intelligence or national security as a career pipeline. So I talk about normalising it. Um, so if you ask school kids what they're going to be, you know, fireys, doctors, lawyers, you know, accountants, etc. Um, no one's saying to me, oh, I'm going to be an intelligence professional, uh, <laughs> except maybe my kids. But um, uh, So for me, it really is how do, how do we just normalise this um, as a career path? Because actually, if you take a step back and we talk about, you know, economic prosperity or national resilience or social cohesion, you know, all of those things have national security aspects to them. Um, and so if we can think about, you know, having school kids go, yeah, you know, I want to work in national security, um, I want to support Australia's prosperity or Australia's security, um, and we just we, we can talk about it as a profession, I think that would be a, a first step. The second bit I would say is uh, traditionally in our kind of targeting and recruitment, you know, we're pitching at a very particular type of graduate, you know, have you done international relations, do you have a language degree, etc. Um, but really, uh, I mean, I, this is my fifth intelligence agency in the community um, and I can guarantee you it doesn't matter what you do or what you've studied, there is a job for you in the intelligence community that is fulfilling, exciting and will give you huge opportunity uh, throughout your career. But again, uh, you know, whether or not it's, uh, you know, an accounting stream or a STEM type stream or, you know, the trade schools, we need to be out there and saying, you know, just because you, you, you know, you're a locksmith doesn't mean you don't have a great career in the intelligence community. I can think of two agencies straight away that would love to have your skill set. <laughs> um, so, you know, for me, it, it is one of just normalisation um, and saying, you know, there's, there's a career path for you. So that's trying to get people thinking about them, get them in the door. I do think we've got lots of work we need to do around just the process. Uh, so uh, once people even turn their mind to it, how they find out information, how they apply, what's actually involved in that process um, and, us, and the intelligence community being very open and transparent about, um, about that. Uh, and some of the implications that, that, that flow from that, especially if we are talking about cowled communities, you know, what, what does it mean for someone with a background in terms of their future ability to travel to particular countries overseas once they hold a clearance or, um, you know, how they'll maintain relationships with, with family members that might still be in um, different countries. They're, they're, they're really important things to, to people's, um, you know, lifestyle, who they are and how they identify. But we should absolutely be able to uh, work with that and make people feel comfortable and, and being able to be authentic and, you know, their true selves in the workplace and, and get the benefit of that diversity of thought. Um, 
if I think about if we, if we did all of that uh, and did it well, um, then it's really one of mobility um, and kind of goes back to my answer earlier. That's not just mobility in the intelligence community. It's mobility with private sector, with industry, with academia, um, having a broader ecosystem of people that have worked in the intelligence community, have a, um, a security clearance of, of of some type will only be of benefits. I I talk a lot about having empathy for people. Um, if you have worked in a particular agency, you have an innate understanding of the challenges that that organisation operates in. So the more mobility we have, I think, leads to greater empathy and greater decision-making because we can understand each other better. We understand where people are coming from. Um, so... I, it might sound like a bit humanistic, um, but I genuinely believe if people moved more, worked more collaboratively together and were exposed to um, each other's challenges, be that a personal kind of background or a workplace, um, we're going to get a much better outcome because we'll have a much greater depth of understanding and appreciation for not just the challenges people face but the huge opportunity um, that working together presents. Um, within the intelligence community, we've done a lot to move to much more integrated teams, um, much more of a mission-based focus, but we've got a long way to go in terms of expanding that same approach out into how we think about employees, staff and partnerships to help us achieve that mission. That was a really comprehensive answer. And if I could just take a really quick plug for the National Security Podcast Cold Mini Series, Caroline mentioned that our next podcast is actually about vetting. And we drilled in, in a little bit more with actual vetting, a, um, vetting and clearance officers. And that importance of mainstreaming, of making the career path really relatable and setting those right expectations, that's a really strong foundation for growing the community. And heaven knows we need more Intel analysts than we need TikTok influencers. <laughs> if, if I could just add one little note to that, uh, what we found with the, um, with the experience of gender equity is that targets work, right? So a target signals to the applicant that they are valued and they have a career path in that agency. And so if you're having a perception problem in your agency of culled staff not applying or even transferring from other places in the APS, you know, a target is a really good signal to say, you know, we internally we're, we're changing, you know, we're changing our processes to help you and you will have a career path here. I agree. <laughs> um, our third question uh, comes from Caroline Badel. Caroline, can I see you in the audience? My name is Caroline. I'm from the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Um, I'm also a double master's student at ANU. I study in international relations and international law. My question is for Kim. Um, as a mature woman, uh, a woman and a more mature woman, uh, how do you suggest breaking into a new career without being perceived or treated as a junior or a beginner? It, it's, a, it's a wonderful question and I think something that um, regardless of, of background, everyone has experienced that feeling of imposter syndrome at, at some time or another. I think there's two there's two parts to two parts to my answer. One is around imposter syndrome, and something that I often say that imposter syndrome is a real privilege um, because it means you get prepared. Um, so if if you feel 
Um, if you feel like you are something of an outsider, um, one, take comfort in the fact that everyone feels this um, and two, take comfort in the fact that that nervousness and that anxiety actually helps you listen better, um, prepare better, ask better questions um, to be able to play a valuable role. I think the other side of it is I'm a big believer that you don't need a job title or a label to be a leader and to make the lives of the people around you better. Um, when I moved across to, to consulting, um, I was 32, I'd been a, a senior lawyer, I'd been to the Olympics and I started consulting as an intern. Um, so, so me and the 19-year-old still, still at uni. Um, but that doesn't stop you bringing your whole self um, and solving the problems that are before you, treating people well, asking good questions and making the life easier for people people around you and I think that that's a real key um, to making a difference it's not I'm not of the camp um, of of personal brand I think it's more important to do the right thing than say the right thing Um, and the consistency of doing the right thing um, I think is incredibly important. I think it's something I have reflected on in in this session of, um, you know, is that harder for people um, who who come from different backgrounds who may not be noticed in the same way? Um, And that's certainly something that I'm reflecting on and how how can we make sure that the people who are heads down doing the right thing get recognised um, and rewarded for their contributions in, in the way they bring themselves um, bring themselves to work. Um, but I think the main thing, if you do the right thing, good things will happen. I, I would just sort of add, uh, like Kim, I mean, I've been an outsider. So at the moment I work in defence and I don't wear a military uniform and I've worked at the ACIC and I didn't wear a policing uniform. And um, <clears throat> when I went to one particular intelligence agency, I hadn't done a course 25 years ago and so therefore I wasn't an intelligence officer, um, even though I, like, run operations with them. So uh, being an outsider is actually normal. Um, and if people will stop and reflect, if someone said to me, I've done the exact same job for the past 30 years, I would think they're really weird. Um, so, you know, it, it's sort of saying, you know, it's a real privilege. Like, just because you haven't got that experience, you do have all these other things that you have done and proven and delivered. And that diversity of experience um, it is invaluable to an organisation and, and organisations are increasingly looking for that diversity of backgrounds because uh, I don't want a, you know, a senior executive team who all have the same ex- lived experience because that's actually counterproductive to what we need. And our final question from the audience comes from Siobhan Madden. Hi. Um, thank you for putting on such a great event today and thank you um, to the ANU for all the support over the years and to Dr McCarthy and um, Dr Carolyn Coelho through my studies. Um, my question is, given the proliferation of serious armed conflicts in the world at present and serious and harmful disinformation, how important is social cohesion to stable societies and what does social cohesion mean to you? Thanks. Does anyone want to start with tackling that one? It's a big question. 
<laughs> it's a, I'll, I'll jump in and um, see how we go. Um, uh, so, I mean, social cohesion I think is absolutely critical um, to, to not just Australia but to other countries. Uh, I mean, it's easy to look around the globe and say, you know, the, the world's going to shit basically. Um, uh, and from an intelligence perspective, there is a huge demand uh, that attaches to that um, to that when that happens and we are expected to respond and inform and give kind of, you know, decision advantage for, for our leadership. Um, but that comes at a cost to, to organisations and to the people that work in those organisations. And so um, whether or not we're thinking about an offshore conflict or one that's closer to home or even looking at, you know, the social divisions that come through really um, challenging questions that have been put to the nation... Um, uh, we really need to think about how do we ensure what we're doing um, has the social licence and the social support of the citizens of the country. Um, and that's a real challenge for the intelligence community. Um, you know, we're not standing up every day talking about why, why we do what we do and what the intelligence is telling us. We can't do that but we certainly have a role to play in informing the policies that are developed um, to, to both of, you know, uh, anticipating what could be divisive, uh, but also informing um, options that might help with some of the bringing together of the nation. And if we think about some of the geopolitical challenges that, you know, could happen over the next five or ten years, um, you know, they, they will have impacts on, on us as a community and how we have a conversation as a country about what actually unites us and what we hold dear and valuable and the benefit that our multicultural society brings to us, uh, both from a workforce perspective uh, but also from um, the values of the liberal system that we seek to support and enable, which, um, which the intelligence community hold dear, to be honest, um, then we absolutely have a role to play and I, th and I think um, only focusing offshore will, will be a detriment to, to the intelligence community and to the broader national security um, environment. I, I think it's a it's a wonderful it's a wonderful answer, and I think it's there's so many layers to this. I mean, something that I often reflect on as as a mother raising um, raising children is how much over time our our sense of community has shifted um, in terms of how we live and and how we link. So, so my dad. Um, comes from sheep and wheat country up in the Mallee and the um, the football and netball teams were the, were the heart of that community and that was, you know, where people went uh, to be together and to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And I think increasingly we are getting caught in a bit of an individualist society that we're quite focused on, you know, achievement and, and possessions and um, and things other than the people we're with and the community that we're a part of. And that's both from a social cohesion sense, but also um, also the, the amount of research that's coming out around the biggest, um, the biggest factor in longevity of life um, is actually the quality of our social relationships. Um, and so thinking about um, how, you know, together we can, um, we can better value, uh, you know, who we are, how we relate, what we're a part of um, and become closer together rather than further apart um, despite whatever the world of online may be, um, may be disrupting um, 
the way we relate to one another. Um, so I really love this idea of our multiculturalism as a strength. So we've become, uh, you know, we're one of the most successful multicultural economies in the world, if not the most successful. And um, and there's research out there that, you know, suggests that the results I found are not limited to the public sector. So we see it in the private sector and in academia. Um, and for me, uh, social cohesion isn't about ignoring um, our challenges, but understanding that multiculturalism is a is one of the best assets that Australia has, um, and making sure that you know we're pulling the best minds from all over the world in this country, and it's making sure that those best minds have the opportunity to be in the seats that they can make impactful decisions for the benefit of the community, and making sure that processes run in both the private, public, and academia to make sure that that actually happens so that we can really, um, you know, make the, make the most out of, you know, what is, you know, a, one of the most diverse economies in the world. Thank you so much, Nunu, and thank you so much to Kim and to Catherine. Um, it's been a fantastic conversation covering the changes that we're witnessing and drawing together lessons from the past, the challenges we're facing now, and the changes that we, we want to shape and the change that we want to be, both socially, politically, in national security, in policy. Um, please join me in thanking our panellists today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.